and for non-disclosure and not being transparent with the movement of money, uh, I broke the law. I got charged on wire fraud and mail fraud charges, and I wound up uh, on uh, serving seven years of, or almost eight years of a 10-year federal prison sentence. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of the We're Invested Multifamily Podcast. It is your host, Joshua Adlam. And today I'm so excited because I have a very special guest, Mike. Mike, how's it going, man? Joshua, good to see you again, man. Awesome, man. Glad to be here. I'm glad I had the opportunity to get to Orlando and uh, be on your show. Thank you so much for coming out. It is such a joy to have you here. Mike has come all the way from Chicago. Um, he made the trip down to Orlando. We uh, manage a bunch of properties for Mike in Tampa. And so just a great time to have you on the show and get to know more about you and your story, man. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. I'm actually, uh, I'm actually came to Orlando. I'm at a event called Faith Over Fear, mm. which, uh, is kind of interesting because normally I go to events that are real estate focused, mm -hmm. real estate based. But this guy putting this event on, and John Maxwell is going to be speaking tomorrow. Man. Uh, this guy that's putting the event on is a uh, multi-level marketing trainer. Mm. And so there's people from all kinds of businesses and industries. And, you know, it's funny, right? We attract people into our lives who we're like, mm. right? Or ki like kind. Mm -hmm. And it, everybody I've talked to is doing some sort of real estate investing. So, <laughs> it, you know, you never know who you're going to meet where you're at. Yeah, I love it. I think that is so cool. Um, why don't you start by telling some of our viewers, man, your story? Who are you? Who's Mike? Yeah. Um, uh, Mike Murawski, real estate investor, uh, actually chief investment officer for a small hedge fund. We buy large apartment complexes in the South and Southeast, typically uh, primary markets that we are very specific about. I'm a market-driven investor. Uh, we buy these apartment complexes and then we partner with individual investors, uh, giving them a hands-off uh, return on their investment. So we share in the profits with them. Awesome. Um, been in the real estate space for about 30 years. Uh, started off, I had a contracting business, burned out on building room additions and went into real estate. And uh, my first nine months in the business, I sold 78 single family houses. Wow. Went on to build a team selling about 125 houses a year. Did that for about 12 years and then went uh, into the apartment business. It's mm. always, uh, you know, you, we focus on things in our life that we want to accomplish or we want to do. And I yeah. thought about being in the apartment business for years. And finally, in 2005, went in the apartment business. Awesome. Okay. 2005. So it sounds like you have a flux of history just in real estate in general, multiple asset classes, just you kind of know it from the ins and outs of what it takes to be good. And you know, you've seen different cycles. You know, I know we're going through a cycle right now. We'll get more into that later. But just out of curiosity, talk to me about what drew you to the multifamily asset class in real estate. What really did it for you? What made you have that interest to take it further? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, when I was in the contracting business, I did a lot of work uh, for a couple of Chicago area syndicators. Okay. You may remember Sam Zell, mm -hmm. um, who just passed recently. Uh, his company, Equity Office, Equity Residential. Uh, then there's Inland Real Estate. You know, Inland has a great story, right? Four high school teachers that decided to 
borrow some money and uh, syndicate their first four-unit multifamily property in Chicago. Mm. And today, they're one of the largest REITs in the world. Wow. So I did a lot of work on a lot of those properties for those companies in the, when I was in the construction business. And I always had this infinity to be in the uh, apartment business. And here's what I understood. I understood that you could raise private capital from individuals, marry it with a great real estate deal. And as long as everything went well, you stayed in the middle and everybody profited from it. Mm. And, you know, I thought that's how simple the business was. Mm. And, you know, from an onset it is, but when you really get into it, it's a little bit deeper. For sure. For sure. And, you know, I would love for you to tell kind of some of your stories of, of what that has looked like for you. Um, because I think a lot of people out there, they think about when it comes to real estate and being an investor, like, yes, if I find a good deal, I can raise the money, but they don't know how to operate. And that yeah. goes into a whole nother skill set that isn't really glorified on social media, isn't really glorified on, on the Instagram reels. You know, you see just, hey, I bought this nice asset. I raised this amount of money. We we cashed out this. You don't really see the ins and outs. So if you could just talk about some of the deeper things that you had to learn yeah. that you saw. Yeah. Um I talk, I talk about this a lot, but you know, people think it's easy, yeah. right? And we're in an environment right now, the last few years, you had the wind at your back. Mm. Everything was going in your favor. And, you know, Warren Buffett says that when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. <laughs> and, and we're kind of at that place right now. I agree. Where the tide is going out and you know, the business that was a year ago really kind of flooded with all kinds of people, newbies, as well as successful long-term investors has thinned out. Everybody is, um, you know, squirrel syndrome or shiny object syndrome, yeah. right? All of a sudden now it's gotten harder. Yep. It's tougher to work now and you have to do more. You have to really master your, your uh, fundamentals mm -hmm. in the business and then develop the ability to do those on a daily basis and build that repetitious boredom. Mm. But, you know, uh, kind of a long answer to your question, but that first deal I did that I thought was going to be so easy, when somebody first mentioned cap rate and NOI to me, I went, <laughs> what? <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. I came from the residential side and, and there was no, you know, we didn't talk about that. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot to learn. Mm. Uh, that first property that I bought was an 11 unit deal. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great, right? The owner said, hey, you can buy this, put a new roof on it, fix the balconies, put a boiler in, upgrade the units, uh, fin refinish the parking lot, restripe the parking lot, and you'll be able to raise rents $100 a month. Mm. Well, I went in and I put a new roof on, put a boiler in, fixed the balconies, uh, renovated apartments, put a new parking lot in, and I wasn't able to raise rents. Mm. And I kept the same demographic and tenant base in there. And it it, it was a very educational couple of years going right. through that process because it helped me realize everything I needed to know. Mm. Uh, it wasn't just about raising money. It wasn't just about finding real estate. It was how you found real estate. Mm. What was your buy box? How did you find those deals to buy? How did you do the due diligence that, you know, I always say due diligence is, is that uh, piece of the process where you are um, 
really making sure you're buying what the seller and the broker were selling you. Because <laughs> what they tell you and what it actually is. I always look at it like this. There's three ghosts. Hey, Joshua, did you ever see the movie Christmas Carol? I have, yes. So we have the ghost of the Christmas past, <laughs> present, and the ghost of Christmas future. Right. Same thing in multifamily. You got the ghosts of the past, the ghosts of the present, and the ghost of the future, especially when it comes to financials. Yeah. And you got to look at all that. So you have to know what you're going into. And I mentioned before, you know, I'm a market-driven investor. So that market has to make sense. You could bring me a great deal today in Chicago, and I would say no. Yeah. And I wouldn't even look at it. But you could bring me a questionable deal in Tampa, in Tulsa. And I would probably take a deep look at it. Right. You're right. Market driven is the best way to understand what to buy and, and how you're buying. And it's funny you say that. We were actually at our offsite yesterday as a company, and we were just kind of talking about some of the metrics that we're going to start looking at a little bit more to kind of make some of these decisions. And because we're in Florida, we're blessed to just kind of have a, st a state or city that really just appreciates naturally over the you know, five, 10 year threshold. Yeah. Um, but really pencil in some of these metrics to better understand, okay, like this area, I can really hit this IR or this area can achieve this rent and understanding the economy in those areas. What, what makes this area have more employment? Right. What jobs are coming here? Why can't I get rents in this area? I think that's a whole deeper level that most people don't really truly right. dive into when assessing a deal and understanding the demographics of the area they're in. So I think that's a, a very good point. Um, kind of on the same breath, I know you're a, a teacher and you, you have like t students and you do a, a bunch of, uh, trainings and you kind of have a whole curriculum that you've created and kind of yeah. help people. Talk to us about that. What has that been like for you? What is your passion behind that? What, what made you start doing that? I know it's very successful. You just highlight some of that stuff. Yeah. So I, I do a couple of different things. I, um, I, I've learned a lot over the years. I've been through these cycles. I've built companies, lost companies. Um, and, you know, through those challenges uh, or opportunities, however you look at them, you learn a lot. And so I feel I have a lot of knowledge to give people. Mm. Uh, I do a group coaching program, you know, and I teach the fundamentals. I teach everything from goal setting to uh, developing a buying strategy, how to pick a market, underwriting, underwriting is just that fancy word for how do we look at those three sets of ghosts, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, the due diligence, how to go to contracts, how to negotiate. So I teach all those fundamentals, including operations. And I, uh, and I do that on a, on a group basis, right? But you're not getting a lot from that. There's nobody holding you accountable. Nobody, uh, uh you know, asking you to take, take the risk to take action and go forward. Uh, you're only going to be as successful as you are at the uh, action that you take from the education you get. Mm. So, so I do a one-on-one -on -one program as well with individuals and I only work with four to or five to six people at a time because of, you know, scheduling, being able to make right. sure. Cause, cause if I'm going to work with you on a one-on-one -on -one basis, Joshua, I want to make sure that I can devote my time to you and mm. give you what you need. But what I do on those one-on-one -on -one sessions is we really zone in on something you need to work on or you are working on. I had a client come to me uh, went about uh, almost three years ago now. When he came to me, he had a 46-unit apartment building. He was trying to get over the finish line, and he was just struggling with it. Well, through coaching, we got that We got that. Uh, property acquired. 
and he's gone on to own 800 other units right now, two commercial properties. Uh, we're building a 176-unit new development project in Phoenix. Wow. That So does coaching work? Absolutely. But it only works as much as the student or the client it takes action. Absolutely. And, and uh, I've been coached personally in my own life for 20 years or better, and it's the accountability and the coaching. Because here, if you give me something you want me to do this week, and I come back next week to the call, and I didn't do it, now I have to explain why. Mm. And now I'm defending myself. But if I come back and I say, yeah, I got this done, what else can I do to push the ball forward? Because we always want that client growing. So I do a one-on-one program. And you know what? It's not expensive. Mm. The investment is very inexpensive in comparison to some other programs out there. I don't believe somebody should pay thirty, forty thousand dollars for a coaching program, because first of all, if you have that kind of money, you should be investing at least <laughs> passively in one of my deals, um, and 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 getting some coaching to learn how to do it on your own. Mm. That's very good, very well said too. I think coaching is is really um, a very valuable tool, especially for those seeking to do real estate. I was actually thinking about a conversation I had with a friend the other day. And we were talking about, um, you know, playing sports. And it's like, if you're on a team and you're playing sports, you need a coach to help the team win. You need yeah. a coach to help you get to that next level and achieve what you want to achieve. Same thing in our business lives. We need coaches. We need that extra level of accountability and people that can support us, can help us, can advise us to kind of get to an area that we couldn't get on our own. And so I, I love that you guys have that and, and kind of provide that you know, for those seeking to be more involved in real estate, those already involved or those just looking to make a fresh entryway right. into the the game of real estate investing. That's very awesome. Yeah. Um, while we're on a topic, though, I was I was really considering or thinking about cycles and how you've pretty much seen a ton of cycles, given that you have a long track record of being in real estate. And we're kind of going through one right now. If you could, man, just talk about some of the adversity that you've overcome in real estate investing, some of the things that you've seen from your experience with cycles and kind of how you were able to overcome those things and kind of just continue your career and continue to be successful. Yeah. So I got in the, I, I went in the apartment business in 2005. I didn't know anybody. I didn't come from a family of entrepreneurs. I didn't come from a family that had money or could, could invest. So I put that 11 unit apartment building under contract. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, holy cow, I got to figure out how to get the money to buy it, <laughs> right? Um, so I did something at the time that was, I thought, very simple, right? Mm -hmm. And I put a little uh, classified ad in the newspaper. So I'm dating myself a little <laughs> bit because today you couldn't do that. Couldn't it do it, yeah. It's, this is an unduplicated tip. <laughs> um, I, I put a $45 ad in the newspaper that said real estate investors wanted and my phone number mm -hmm. and my phone rang off the hook for about seven days mm. from that 45 bucks, best money I ever spent. <laughs> and, um, I just talked to people about real estate investing and what we were doing and, you know, would you have an interest in this? And I raised the money to close that property. Mm -hmm. I also raised, I raised a total of about 600,000 from that little ad. Mm -hmm. So we were able to close that property and buy the next one also. But from that first property I bought, over the next 30 months, I bought 4,000 units. Wow. So I raised $18 million. Again, a market where the wind was at my back, really in our favor. We bought uh, 4,000 units in five markets. 
I bought that first deal in Chicago. I said, I'm not going to make any money in Chicago here. We're going to go to other markets. Yeah. So owned a bunch in the Ohio Valley, Alabama, Northern Alabama, and uh, the Texas market. And by this way, did you raise all this money from newspaper ads? No. I was about to say, oh my goodness. That's, <laughs> no, no. That has to be a world record. <laughs> some of some of how I raised some of that money we could do, we still do today and can do today. Gotcha. So gotcha. I did a lot of uh I did a lot of seminars in my office. Okay. So I was in an office that had a nice conference room mm-hmm. and we would put uh, 20 brand new faces in that conference room twice a week, Tuesday and Thursday night and do a 45-minute seminar on real estate investing, the fundamentals. You know, Gary Keller from Keller Williams wrote a book, and I think I think Keller's one of the smartest guys in the real estate business, mm-hmm. but he wrote a book that is called The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. I, I think it's the Bible <laughs> because the principles in that book are, are fundamentals that you can always use. I taught those principles from that book in this, in this class, in this, uh, real estate investing course. And I would always at the end go, Oh, by the way, here's what else we do. And people just wanted to get involved. They wanted to put money in. Mm. So it was through seminars. It was through going to events and having a table, you know, um, another quick story, Donald Trump used to have these real estate investing weekend summits. Yeah. And which was at the time like groundbreaking stuff, but we would uh, get a booth in the auditorium of those events, and there would be, uh, you know, those booths at the time cost twenty five thousand dollars for the weekend. So he only did five of these. He did uh, one in L.A., one in New York, two in Chicago, and one in Dallas. And we did the two in Chicago, Dallas, and L.A., best $100,000 I ever spent. A little more than the $45. (laughs) Right. But we we gave away a bunch of uh, books. We raffled off TVs, but we collected a lot of business cards and of people who were potential investors. And we just built a database. I built a very extensive high net worth uh, database where people wanted to invest in these deals. Hmm. So over the next 30 months, uh, I built this 4,000 unit apartment portfolio. Uh, I had about 230 investors that were invested in that portfolio. Also built a property management company, which Atrium does very well for us now today. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but we vertically integrated a property management company managing 7,500 units. Gotcha. So we built this company valued at about $100 million. And this is 2005, six, seven. All right. Let me stop you right there. Because yep. I, can you put the mic closer? Put the mic closer to you. I didn't make sure you hear me. All right, cool. Um, edit that out, of course. But I want to stop you right there because I want to ask you said, okay, we, we bought 4,000 units and then we built a company, um, 7,500 units. What made you say I need to build this property management company in a mix of buying those assets? At the time, I thought we would make more money mm. from it. Okay. I have learned over the years that that's not necessarily the case. Mm. There's a lot more aggravation. I would rather be focused on meeting you and talking to you about investing with us than worrying about a, a tenant that we're trying to move in, get an application approved, or get evicted, right? It's easier, and and I use easier, uh, it, you know, 
at perspective because right. we still have to asset manage. So Joshua, you know, on a weekly basis, and now we're down to every other week, you're on the phone with, with our team and we're asking you the hard questions. Mm-hmm. Hey, where's the occupancy? Where's the collections? Who's moving in? How many applications are we taking? We're looking at all the KPIs. Right. We're making sure that you're doing your job. And, you know, which I, I just, a shameless plug for Atrium. You guys are doing a hell of a job for us, and we appreciate that. You know, when we talk about being able to double our top-line revenue and take occupancy to where it is, and you know, hey, we underwrote that deal at 900. When we took it over, the units were renting the two bedrooms Mm -hmm. at 950 a door. My partner and I fought thinking that I, I thought we could get the rents to 1250. He he was yelling at me, telling me we'll never get beyond 1150 <laughs> and you're renting them today at 1400. <laughs> so, you know, um, you, you guys do a great job Thank so you. We, and we appreciate that. that. So, uh, yeah. So it's easier today to have somebody else do that management than it is to vertically integrate. As far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. it's just a headache that I don't want to, I want to be involved in other businesses, but not, not that have that big of headaches. Right. Okay. Makes total sense. Okay. But you're saying you create that business property management. And then what happened after you got your 4,000 units, 30 months, that's really, really fast. Um, and really impressive. But what happened after that? Yeah. Don't be impressed by it (laughs) for real. Um, you know, in 2007, I closed 17 deals for 2,200 units in three different states. Mm. It was a little bit of brain damage, Mm. um, grew really way, way too fast. So I always tell people I made five mistakes, and that was the first one. Grew way too fast, very unstable as a company. Um, Then I was over leveraged. So I owned $60 million worth of real estate at 85% loan to value. Mm. You know, I I don't know who was worse, me for taking the money or the banks for giving it to me, (laughs) right? Because I I coach my clients today that, hey, you should not be invested unless you're at least 65% LTV. Mm. You need that spread. You need that room to breathe, you know? Right. Um, and then the other thing, I was undercapitalized as a company. You know, I, I had 100 people working for me and uh, just didn't have the capital to continue to do that. Those were the three major mistakes that I made. Um, and then I, I wasn't paying attention to details. So I, I, I had a partner who was a great operations guy at a company he worked for. Mm -hmm. They downsized, he lost his job. He came to work for me on the real estate side, uh, taught him everything about real estate. He sold a bunch of houses. You know, I thought that going into the apartment business and having his operational skills would help, and it it really didn't. Uh, So the operational side suffered. 2008 came around. It was like hitting a brick wall in a freight train. And we started to derail and come off the tracks. Right. So I looked at it and I thought, well, this is just a recession. This is going to last 17 or 18 months. There'll be a 10 or 12% correction in the marketplace. Markets will bounce back. Yeah. I also thought, you know, we could we can weather this storm. We can get through some, some of the rough times that are going to come. So I kept trying to buy property, uh, thinking that, my team was operating the properties properly. So 2010 came around and, and 
you know, by then the commercial market had started to really be affected. Back in 2008, all the CMBS markets, all the Wall Street bad paper started to implode. The residential market, all the foreclosures turned inside out. And I thought, hey, all these foreclosures, it's great for us. Right. People are going to still need a place to live. Buy more deals, cheaper, yeah. But let's back up for a minute and talk about the conversation again around markets, mm -hmm. right? Uh, one of the things you want to look at in a market is the employment diversification. Mm. So I was heavily invested in markets, uh, specifically in the Ohio Valley, that were like one or two employer type markets. Mm. Transportation and uh, manufacturing, manufacturing for the automobile industry, little knobs for radios and dashboards and things like that. Well, I didn't have enough employment diversification, so people started to lose their jobs. Mm. Uh, couldn't pay rent. You know, I had a property in Indiana that we own. I get a phone call on a Monday morning from our on-site manager who said, who's in tears. And I'm like, Mary, what's wrong? She says, I have 32 moving trucks in the parking lot this morning. Wow. No scheduled move-outs for 42 days. I don't know what to do. Wow. So mass exodus from properties. So NOI drops, can't pay your bills, right? So that's why watching those KPIs, making sure that your property management team or, or a third-party company is doing what they need to be doing. Yeah. And we have a couple great partners in that business today. So um, so that the commercial market had started to really get hit as a result of what happened in the uh, uh, residential side. So by 2010, we were just done. We were falling off the rails. So I, I thought, you know, hey, being a recession, it's going to bounce back. Let me move money. So I would take money from profitable companies and put it in non-profitable companies. My accountant and my attorney both said, hey, it's okay to do that. Let's just leave a paper trail and we'll watch it. When the markets come back, we'll put the money back and you'll look like a hero. Yeah. So uh, that was the intention. But like I said, the markets never came back. 2008 lasted seven or eight years with a 47% correction in the markets. You can't weather that storm no. no matter how hard you try. Yeah. So what happened was I didn't tell my investors of me trying to upright the ship and keep every everything going. And for non-disclosure and not being transparent with the movement of money, uh, I broke the law. I got charged on wire fraud and mail fraud charges and I wound up uh, on a, uh, serving seven years of, or almost eight years of a 10-year federal prison sentence. Gotcha. Wow. So um, a lot of good things there that I really kind of want to <laughs> unpack, you know, just for our viewers, because again, one, just appreciate the transparency of telling your story and kind of some things you've learned. Um, and two, I just think a lot of people can learn from those mistakes that you listen. I know you said five of them, but Thinking back to when you got that phone call on the Monday from your property manager. Yeah. 32 people moving out and they didn't they weren't scheduled to. As a investor and as a leader, not only that but just as a human, what's going through your mind when you hear that type of news? Because to me, yeah, not being a part of that moment or that cycle, it sounds like that was rock bottom. Like there was it was hard to it would be hard to have seen an end in sight. What was going through your mind initially when you kind of said, okay, I got this one property, 30 people moving out at one time. What do, what do I do for it? What was kind of like your mindset? Um, yeah, I'm not going to say what I said, 
but um, I, I I knew I was in trouble, mm-hmm. and I didn't really know what to do. Mm-hmm. I know I got in the car, I went home, packed a bag, and I went to I went to the property and uh, tried to see what we could do. So um, after the initial shock set in, mm-hmm. and I realized that that this was happening and that people were moving out. We, we, we put a plan in, in action. We went to the city, met with the mayor, tried to get some, some tax relief. We tried to get some incentives from the city to help us be able to move tenants in. Uh, we tried to get some uh, incentives from the city to help us finish our repair projects that we had in place that we had to take our CapEx budget now and keep the property operational. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wound up meeting with the lender and, re, uh, and mitigating the loan. So the lender reduced what at the time was a 7% interest. We got them to knock four points off and got the interest down to 3%, paying interest only for the next uh, five years on the loan. Mm-hmm. And uh, they took um, they took $100,000 off the principal mm-hmm. owed, just wiped it clean off the loan, and we put any late payments on the backside. And they gave us six months relief to before we had to start paying payments again. Wow. So the lenders at that time were working with you if you went to them and you communicated with them, much like today's environment. Mm-hmm. Look, if your loan's in trouble, go to your lender. Mm-hmm. Start those conversations today. If you see a problem coming in a year from now, go to your lender. Mm-hmm. Start those conversations today because the proactiveness in your part is going to help. Mm. Um, the... The next thing that we did was we um, we we cut rents, we gave incentives, we provided concessions, and you know the funny thing is the market was so bad that the concessions didn't help. Wow! So I would give you fifty um, percent off your rent for the first three months. Mm-hmm. So if my rent was six hundred dollars at the time, you could live there for three months at three hundred bucks a month, mm-hmm. um, and then. After that, it would convert back to full full amount of rent. Right. Um, the funny thing is that at day eighty nine, people would move down the street to the next concession. Wow. So people were <laughs> were moving around, right? Yeah. Um, so the market was just really bad. So even in the midst of all that, uh, we we just you you couldn't save properties. I had I had another property in uh, Cincinnati. I walked into the, we had the loan was with a, a local bank, walked into the bank and the banker said, no, we're not going to mitigate with you. I said, okay, that's fine. And I, I had uh, all the keys for the property in a, 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 a shopping, small shopping bag. Mm-hmm. And I took him and I dumped him on his desk and he went like, you know, bounced back. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, what's that? I said, that's the keys to the property you own. Have a nice day. And, and started to walk out and he's like, wait, 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 uh, come back. Let's work something out. So, you know, they ultimate, if, if there is no other choice, then you given the property back to the bank, then that's what you need to do. But, but I, we only did that in a few cases and we weren't able to really mitigate the storm. My problem was that I, I didn't want any of my investors to get hurt. So I tried to protect everybody. Right. I had 12 deals. I should have just let go to foreclosure and a handful of my investors get hurt, but I chose to try and save everybody. Mm. 
And I, I totally understand that mindset because in real estate, you know, it's all about your reputation and you never want to lose people money. Right. Right. In 2008, that present a, a very, very, you know, different market and, and trying time in which, you know, I can totally understand people feeling the pressure, you know what yeah. I mean? The pressure to perform and still produce returns, even, you know, with the economy being what it was. Um, a few things kind of came to my mind, though, as you were telling that story. Um, when you were discussing with the banks, right, and you're trying to mitigate your loans, one, I didn't even know that was a thing. So I just learned something new that you can go back and kind of have those type of conversations and relationships with, um, you know, the bank and whatnot. But two, I want to ask, were your, were your investors trying to communicate with you like, hey, Mike, what's going on with this property? Like, what what was that communication level like? And then kind of what were the answers you were giving them to kind of keep them rest assured, even though it was getting pretty bad? Yeah. So I gave investors the same answer I was getting from my partner for a long time, which was everything's okay. Mm -hmm. We're, we're fine. We're moving along. Um, you know, we, um, I'm much more transparent today right. and I'm much more upfront with my investors. Cause I know more because the fourth mistake I made, remember I said I made five, I just told you three. Mm -hmm. The fourth was that I didn't pay attention to the details. So I thought I had this great operations guy who had it under control and I thought if I went and did another deal and brought more capital into the company for that, that that would help mitigate our problems financially. And, and that wasn't the case. So I should have spent more time mitigating loans and, and working through some of the lending stuff. And I, I went to my partner one day. I said, look, we need to, we need to fire, you know, and I gave him a list of people and um, you know, five of us need to just focus on these assets. And he said, no, go out there, close another deal. We're going to be fine. Hmm. Um, so, uh, and I'm not placing blame. I broke the law, yeah. right? I should have told my investors. Um, but we were doing, we were doing a quarterly conference call. We were, you know, sharing numbers and, um, you know, we never published statements or, or falsified numbers. We were very honest about that part of it because I always knew that would get you in trouble. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we sugarcoated it for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can only imagine as far as just the pressure you felt. Like, man, to have so many properties kind of go under and trying to just trust the people on your team and it yeah. not really be, you know, significant as far as the value that they're adding and trying to figure it out on yourself. I can, man, that's that's really tough. And I'm, I'm just grateful that you were able to come through on the other side of that and be able to tell your story. We're Invested Podcast is produced by Atrium Management Company. Thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe.